0: Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. This is California. I'm Hugh Hewitt, the voice of reason in the West. Welcome to this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. You are in part six of a six-part look at Western civilization. Our guide, Dr. Larry Arne. He is the president of Hillsdale College in Southern Michigan. He has his doctorate from Claremont Graduate School in Modern History and Political Theory. He was, for a time, a research scholar under the guidance of Sir Martin Gilbert, the world's greatest historian, specializing in Churchill working at Oxford. He has now uh, been engaged for the past five hours with us in sort of the, uh, the cook's tour of Western theory, Western philosophy, beginning with Socrates, beginning actually with Job, and extending all the way to the present, but we're now into his meat and potatoes. We're in the American founding, and in this hour we're covering just four people, but such four people, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Churchill. Uh, It seems to me, Dr. Oren, that this is a part where everyone's going to have some familiarity, but it's fallen on hard times in recent years as to why it matters what these people did. Why don't we start there? Why do we even care what these people in funny suits wrote about in 1776? After all, we have the Supreme Court, and they tell us what we need to know now.
1: Yeah, there you go. Well, uh, the answer to that question is contained in the decisions written by the Supreme Court of the United States. Just read one of them sometime and you'll figure out (laughs) maybe somebody must have been pretty good to make all this. But that reaches to a serious point, which is if you wish to be a student of important things, you're bound to have to study politics because, as I said at the beginning of this, political things always turn upon claims about what constitutes good and bad, right and wrong. And these claims are the most authoritative. Here on Earth, they have the power of a monopoly on force behind them. And so, in the, in the history of the great political things, America is, by any standard, one of the great nations. Uh, it is the successor to the Roman and the British empires. Uh, today, anywhere in the world where there's a problem, the question arises, ought we to solve it? Because if it cannot be solved locally then it cannot be solved without our help or permission or both. We are a great people. We dominate the world. We have a record of written constitutional history that is longer than any people, ever. Um, The forms of our Constitution, although challenged, in my opinion, and the cause of that challenge is a great crisis, I believe, the one that we face in our time, still those forms operate still it's true that the president stands up every four years and takes an oath. And it's the same oath that all the ones before him took. And still it's true that they all deliver a speech. And when they deliver the speech, they all try to make it consonant in some sense with that first inaugural address given by George Washington 200-some years ago. So it's important to try to give an account of yourself of what does your country mean and what is it about it that is its excellence. And it seems to me that in the lives of these four men, one of them only half American, so far as biography is concerned, you can give that account.
0: Why do you want to begin with Jefferson? Your list began with Jefferson and not with Washington.
1: Well, because Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, and that's why he should be here. And it all begins with the Declaration of Independence. And it's really more important to talk about Jefferson's product than it is about Jefferson, the producer of it. Uh, he was the main author, not the only one of the Declaration. And the Declaration is a unique document in political history. It's the first time that a people ever started a country on the basis of a document giving the reasons for the country. And those reasons fit wonderfully in this long sweep that we've been undertaking, in my opinion, in the opinion of the people who taught me. Um, this document constitutes a practical in some ways and a theoretical in other ways solution to some of the problems that are raised by what we've been talking about. You have the problem that that in the ancient world the law was a particular thing growing out of the people and, the, and especially the gods of each individual place. But now we have monotheism, and so in a world where the the law is delivered from God to a class of people who are his representatives on earth, what kind of government will you get from that? And in a way, the Reformation and Luther and Machiavelli, in a different way, are all commentators on that question and what they think is that in such a conception you will get despotism. That doesn't by itself mean any rebellion against Jesus because Jesus is a unique figure in many ways, but in one that he was not a founder of a nation. He didn't govern. He didn't form an army and attack anybody. Mostly his statements and the statements of his of his apostles and the authors of the New Testament about politics are that you should obey what's there. So something new had to be worked out. And in the end, what was worked out was worked out above all and best in the Declaration of Independence. There, a political system is built to recognize our rights, which include our right to worship. And these rights, however, do not destroy what is called the laws of nature and of nature's God. Rights, in that document, do not destroy right. And so we have the volition to govern ourselves as we choose, but how we choose is judged by a higher power than we, and if we disobey that power, Others are then justified in doing what we do with the Declaration of Independence in rebelling.
0: Now, the two objections, and I, by the way, have put both of these objections to your professor, uh, Professor Jaffa, on our annual Fourth of July broadcast on this program. The two objections, of course, is one, uh, when Jefferson refers to nature's God, he doesn't really believe in nature's God. He doesn't believe in God. He believes in Thomas Jefferson's intellect. And the other is that all well and good, but the man owns slaves, so it's all a bunch of balderdash.
1: Well, the first thing is it's certainly not true that Thomas Jefferson believed in Thomas Jefferson's intellect. He believed in a, in a, I mean, what he writes and and what he says privately is he believes in a, in a natural world available to the intellect. What he believes about God is controversial, by the way. He he does, for example, in an interesting point. On the question of separation of church and state, he did, as president, attend uh, services faithfully held every Sunday morning in the chamber of the United States House of Representatives, Christian services. But Jefferson, I I do not believe that there's any ground for doubt that Jefferson believed that these laws of nature and of nature's God were perceivable by every person and established in nature. That, I believe, he believed with perfect firmness and that they are a summary of what you might call the moral law, right and wrong, doing the right thing, not stealing, not cheating, not lying, such as that. And that that law was the law that condemned George III. It's interesting, you see, that they took the trouble, when they're writing this letter of rebellion to the most powerful man on earth, to call upon a standard, not just their will, by which they would exercise this rebellion
0: they gave an account and they listed his crimes
1: and and uh, that's right that's right and and so remember it's not an act of will it's a, the, the purpose of the declaration because you could just write and say get out of here buddy we're tired of you we will not have you anymore that's not what they do what they do is itself an act of sacrifice first an act of obedience to these laws of nature and of nature's God. Second, a statement of what they are so that the candid world to which they refer in the document can also make their own judgments fairly. And then finally at the end, a pledge, each one, that they must, to each other, give every valuable thing that they have. Of their own, not including, they don't promise to sacrifice their families, but their fortunes, their lives, and their sacred honor, they do promise. So, that document, and remember, there's this...
0: Solution. Why is it important for you to make that note that they did not pledge their families?
1: Well, um, they don't promise the life of any other, just their own lives. You
0: see. Uh, we they have promise a only
1: what's theirs.
0: We only have a minute to the break and we'll come back to Jefferson after the break. But we do have in the in, in the postmodern world, the ultimate sin is hypocrisy and you have yet to, to cross that bridge of the, the problem of slavery in Jefferson's own life.
1: Well, hypocrisy, another word for it is vice flattering virtue. So hypocrisy is actually better than than open vice. So I don't condemn it in the same way. But also these people were not hypocrites. They themselves were practicers of and condemners of slavery. And they themselves were urgently involved in the task of figuring out what on earth to do about that. Because, of course, slavery had been the rule everywhere before them, and they had to find a way to get rid of it. They adopted the principles that made it, ultimately, once those principles were vindicated, necessary to get rid of it.
0: When we come back, we stay a bit with Thomas Jefferson before we move on to George Washington, uh, who may not be in vogue, but is really ought to be you're listening to part six of the special edition new year's day and new year's eve edition of the hugh hewitt show welcome back america hugh hewitt part six of this special edition of the hugh hewitt show originally broadcast on december 31st 2001 january 1st 2002 to launch your new year's resolutions on a good path by updating you on everything you missed or slept through in the course of your western sieve uh, many many years ago our guide through this dr larry arn President of Hillsdale College, and if you want to continue to get a little bit of Hillsdale every month, then you can get free of charge obligation and they will never sell your address in Primus. That is the newsletter of Hillsdale College, which excerpts great speeches and intellectual controversies once a month. You can get that by calling 1-800-437-2268. 1.2 million Americans get that every single month. Uh, you can join those and at least be on the same page with most of thinking America one eight hundred four three seven twenty two sixty eight Doctor Arne, we were talking about Jefferson, and before we move on to Washington, I have to ask you why even care about the declaration after all, the Constitution came after it and sort of uh, replaced it as the governing ordinance of the country at least that 's what uh, Justice Rehnquist tells us and well, just and judge bork
1: well they uh, they they make an error there the um, The declaration was not a form of government although it implied one the declaration was a statement of the reasons for government and in particular for our government the constitution gives form to that now the constitution does have in its text uh, three places where it protects human slavery and in order to understand that those are compromises of necessity rather than assertions of what is good you have to understand the connection between the constitution and the principles of liberty and those principles are stated in the declaration of independence um, we did get this uh... doctrine in the second law that the supreme court ever overturned dred scott versus sanford that the that the doctrine of the constitution was that the black man had no rights that the white man was bound to respect you can't find any authoritative person in the, in the making of the revolution either the declaration the war or the Constitution who believed that that's not what they said what they said was slavery is wrong and we have to find a way to get rid of it now that that it seems to me that these two documents have to be understood together and they are both essential and and the idea that you could abstract from the one to the other seems to me foolish
0: when do the students of Hillsdale read the declaration Uh, they read that
1: in their first year in the second semester under American Heritage.
0: Interesting. You wait until the second semester then.
1: Well, it's just because we do West, we do the old stuff. We go sort of go in chronological order.
0: All right, I want to turn now to Washington, because after the break we're going to do Lincoln, and that will take two segments, and we're going to mix Churchill in with that. But Washington is often overlooked in a hurry up, because in many respects he's not very modern. <laughs> he's just not very uh, dashing, though he is the soul of courage and physical bravery. Uh, what do we need to know about him?
1: Well, first of all, he was very dashing. <laughs> he was uh, one of the most handsome men ever born. Uh, I, one of my, one of my uh, high pleasures being a president of the college is I have this great sculptor here. His name is Tony Frudakis, and he wins awards for his sculptings. And So he's working on George Washington, of course. We're going to have a seven-foot bronze of George Washington on this campus. Also Churchill and Lincoln and Thatcher and Reagan, a few of them. And uh, George Washington is gorgeous. Uh, uh, Abigail Adams said of him, when writing to her husband, when she first met him, I was not told to have. Um, I doubted when I saw the 24-inch clay of this thing that will become a big bronze that he could have been so handsome, but Tony Friedakis produced a life mask made in plaster of Washington's face. He's, He's a gorgeous man. He's very big. He he was a fabulous horseman. He looked wonderful on a horse. Everything about him spoke of rule. Self control as the fundamental basis of it. He had this uh, massive self control. He kept himself he was very funny. He loved to laugh and tell jokes. He loved to talk to the ladies at 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 uh, in the evening at dinners and things. He was a very circumspect man and though no, about Anytime you talk about states when talking to ladies these days you think they're doing something improper. He did not. Um he had a very powerful temper, which came out only a few times. And the most perceptive observers understood that his self control was in part that great virtue that everyone should cultivate, but also it was it began in necessity because he could blow up and What he ultimately did, of course, was blow up a continent. There are two places where, in the war, where he changed the course of a battle by his presence and his actions. At Princeton and at Monmouth, in both cases, the American army was running away, and he waded into the middle of it, directly toward the British. In one case, just riding his horse forward. In another case, shouting and commanding and in a few cases, whipping the men. (laughs) And and in both cases, they turned and fought. And in the Battle of Princeton, the British, more or less, ran away from him. He gave these commands to fire, standing between the two armies. And when the uh, the, uh, smoke had cleared, there's an account of this from Colonel Fitzwilliam, who was one of his adjutants who was there. They all thought he was dead, but he was standing exactly Mm -hmm. where he had been. And he just he just was unshaken by the experience.
0: Now, you, I, I would uh, impose on you for the story about removing his glasses and growing old in the service of the country, because I heard you say it once in a, in a remarks, and it's a it's a powerful anecdote.
1: Well, at Newburgh, you know, he uh, the, the, the the officers after the Battle of Yorktown, these people who had been a rabble fleeing from the most disciplined army in the world had beaten them, and had become a wonderful army, and Congress was then, as it is now and ever will be, um, stupid and awkward. Not, not corrupt, you know, but stupid and awkward. And, you know, it's a big bunch of people, and they never can agree. So one of the ways in which they manifested their character was in not paying the soldiers, who had given them a country to govern. <laughs> so so the soldiers were in a state of rebellion. They had the idea of, Marching off to the West and leaving everybody to their own devices, <laughs> you know it's a it's like a huge martial pout <laughs> but you know justified and then they had the idea of sending a demand on the civil government so Washington heard of this first, he delayed the meeting, then he let them schedule it, and then he went showed up by surprise, and he walks up to the front of him asks if he can speak. Of course, already he has become what he will prove to be, the greatest American. I mean, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and John Adams and Patrick Henry, and none of them could run for president against him. It's not possible. He's, he's overwhelming, you know.
0: Thirty seconds to break. So,
1: so he goes up to the front, and he takes out his glasses and says he was going to read. He says, excuse me, he says, I've grown old serving in your company. And he gives them this beautiful speech. And in it, he establishes two things. You are the servants of the civil government. That's the first. And the second is, I am your servant. I, in this matter of your pay, will be your
0: servant. We come back and discuss the implication of those two messages on this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show with with. President Larry Arn of Hillsdale College and me, your host, Hugh Hewitt, on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, joined by Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, talking about George Washington in this part six of our two-day extravaganza looking at uh, Western civilization. Uh, we were just talking, uh, President Arn, about Washington quelling a rebellion among the Revolutionary Army, the Army, Continental Army. But he also did another amazing thing. He laid down power. Uh, And before we move on to Lincoln, the significance of that.
1: Well, there's that great story, you know, where the prime minister was speaking to George III, who could not be brought to um, call the peace conference after Yorktown. He had lost the New World, you know, oops. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, one day he looked up and he said to the prime minister, he said, you know, Washington does not know how to be a king. He will be a tyrant and the people will want me back. And the Prime Minister replied, sir, I understand that General Washington is retiring and going home. And the king visibly started, you know, what does a conqueror do, you see? Mm-hmm. He took it for granted. And he replied, if he does that, he's the greatest living man.
0: George is, the Third is reported to have said that? Yes. I was unaware of that. That's he, an amazing story. He did.
1: Washington did that
0: on two occasions and And you know
1: you talk about the greatness of a man it you see his 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 uh, his, his virtues he's chosen because he is the sum of virtue, and he's uncontested. first courage you know, on a battlefield, you know mad Anthony Wayne, you know who's crazy, you know he couldn't stop himself from throwing himself physically bodily upon the enemy. He thought George Washington was the bravest man he ever met. And and so he was like that. But also, his moderation, his utter trustworthiness with power, he would not abuse it. He demonstrated that over and over again. Don't pay us. I'll keep them together anyway. Now, and then I'll write you nice letters about how I'm working for you and mean it. You see, that if you wonder, by the way, those guys who are over there in Afghanistan right now working for us, they are the most lethal living people. Why do they work for us? If you want to meet a government official who treats you with respect, as if he were your command, you were his commander, meet somebody in the military. In the post office or the DMV, they might be surly with you. A military officer is still carrying in his breast the lesson of George Washington.
0: I must now switch, because of the pressure of time. We could spend a long time on General Washington, but we need to go to Lincoln, um, whom some would call the greatest American, even superior to Washington. Uh, What do we need to know about Lincoln? What do you make the young men and women of Hillsdale College read that Lincoln wrote?
1: Well, we read, of course, the first and second inaugural addresses. and uh, Everybody reads those, and... uh, we read the Gettysburg Address. Everybody reads that, and we read uh, in the political science department they teach everything he wrote, um, and you know we don't. Nobody ever studies him enough, in my opinion. Lincoln is this—he's uh, a poet. If you, if anybody doubts it, what you should do on Lincoln's birthday, February the 12th, is um, sit down and read the second inaugural address and see the biblical sense of justice that is in it and read it through over and over until it's familiar the gettysburg address is the same phenomenon the first inaugural is a brilliant constitutional argument that i urge everyone to read but these two things the second the second inaugural and the gettysburg address they're just poems they're beautiful he says in the second inaugural if every drop of blood drawn by the sword by the lash During 200 years of the bondsman's unrequited toil, must now be repaid by another, drawn by the sword. Still it will be said that the ways of God are righteous altogether. The war is seen as a visitation of justice. Now Lincoln is this kid who grew up on a farm in poverty and toil, educated himself by firelight, uh, knew Want most of his life. And somehow, he became a lawyer. He became a prosperous lawyer. Uh, he was involved in local politics. He served in Congress, didn't like it, wasn't there very long. Um, somehow, he became a commander uh, of great affairs under incredible pressure. He does say, getting on the train to go to the first inaugural to to, to Washington to take up his job that he had before him a task greater than the task of Washington. In another place, his eulogy to Washington is
0: just gorgeous. We will come back and talk about that task and how it was discharged after these messages. Stay tuned to the special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, American, the penultimate segment of our six-part special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, our sort of cook's tour of Western civilization. We're talking about the Great Emancipator, Abraham Lincoln, with Dr. Larry Arn, President of Hillsdale College. If you want a little bit of Hillsdale every month, call and get on the mailing list for Imprimus, their monthly newsletter, excerpting a great speech or commentary. It is absolutely free, and they will never, ever give your name away. You just get great thinking. 1 800 437 2268. 1 800 437 2268. Dr. Arn, Lincoln got on the train went off to do a task greater than Washington, which was to uh, plunge the nation into civil war, some would argue, at least in the South, unjustly having done so.
1: Well, my own view of that is uh, the true one. (laughs) My own view is the view of the people who started this college, and I think it's true. What Lincoln, the problem that the Union faced was this, that slavery, which was, you know, operated in some ways kind of like, some difficult question to operate today, maybe abortion or stem cell research or something. It's one of those unpleasant topics and nobody wants to talk about it. You know, Bill Clinton's opinion about abortion was that it should be safe, legal, and rare. You know, why rare? And, you know, it's in every eye it is cast in some disfavor. Slavery was like that, too. It became an urgent question because of the Western lands. Because as they began to be in demand and began to be populated, the question arose, are they going to be slave or free? The people in the South, who were the slave owners, which is a minority of them, but they were a very powerful minority, they had a keen interest in it being expanded, in part because it's good economics. It, it, you know, The slaves become more valuable if there's more land for them to work, and the land becomes cheaper if there's more land available, and so both sides of the transaction work in their beha- in their favor. On the other hand, in the North, it began to become urgent for a lot of reasons, but one of them was a lot of these farmers who were going out there didn't want to have to compete with these big plantations. So it began to disturb the national mind. And the problem was that it was plain that the Declaration of Independence was meant, among other things, to be a condemnation of human slavery. But the Constitution both protected it positively in three ways, but second, It also did not give the federal government power to end it where it was. And so the Republican Party was born with a kind of a constitutional position. It figured something out. And the something was that there was a happy accident, and that is most of the land of the United States is not yet incorporated as states and is under the rule of the Congress. And so the Congress at least is not denied, but is, in fact, given, they believe, not explicitly, admittedly, the power to forbid it in the federal territories. And that means, then, that you could have a constitutional method of placing slavery, as Lincoln's phrase, in the course of ultimate extinction. Lincoln, in his first inaugural, says that he himself would not resist a constitutional amendment, though it would be redundant to forbid the federal government ever interfering in slavery in the states where it exists. But it must be excluded from the territories, because in that case it will remain a minority interest in the country, and ultimately a way will be found out of it. Hmm. That's his argument. It's a constitutional argument, and it's put with this poetic beauty. He puts it first in the Lincoln-Douglas debates in the argument with Douglas, where Douglas's view is, I I care not whether slavery is voted up or voted down. His doctrine was called popular sovereignty. He thought local constituencies should be permitted to decide it on their own. He said, uh, famously, if the good men of Nebraska are good enough to govern themselves, why are they not good enough to govern a few miserable Negroes? And Lincoln replied, they're good enough to govern themselves, but they're not good enough to do what no man is good enough to do, which is to govern another man without his consent. These arguments are wonderful expositions of the meaning of our country, and in my opinion, I'm going to stop saying that because it's just true, they constitute a revival of the doctrines that made our country what it is and a completion of the work that was begun with the American Revolution. And Abraham Lincoln, this little farm boy country lawyer, is the man that God appointed to bring those arguments to life.
0: Now, I we've got to make a quick turn, because we have about six minutes of talking left in a six-hour presentation. And we've saved our last segment for, in my opinion, uh, the greatest man that the West has yet produced, not saying that there won't be another one. He's only half American, though. He's half English. And I call him the greatest man because, but for him, uh, the West would not have survived World War II, in my opinion. But you worked a long time on Churchill. What is Churchill's Greatness Part 1?
1: Well, Churchill is... Uh the only statesman in the modern world, I think he's the only one, who leaves such a record of what he thought as he did. His deeds are incredibly long. He was in Parliament for, he was in leadership in Parliament for 50 years, roughly. He was in Parliament for 60. Um, he held every high office except Foreign Secretary. He wrote 50 books, roughly. He wrote all his own speeches, with one exception. They are beautiful. His memoranda, his letters, the whole archive weighs three tons. Um, There's nobody quite like him to figure out how a practical man thinks and what is the connection in the mind of a practical man between the highest principles and the actions that he takes. It's a very rare thing, and I can tell you from reading in his archive for some years that there's nobody... I mean, it's, it's just awesome what he delivers, what he produces, day after day after day. In the greatest crisis that he faced, the time when he saved the world, I believe that there's no other human being who could have been in that place. And I believe that was the one place where the thing could be done. I believe that there's no other human being who could have done it. And it gives you a sense of providence when you think that through. If you know in detail some of the other people who were in the room, on the 28th of May in 1940, when he gave the speech, impromptu, to about 40 people, or 50, that that uh, kept Britain in the war and ultimately brought us in. None of them could have done what he did. Very few of them would have been inclined to do it. And he, an old man, he's 65 at this time, he delivers himself of an address that is just...
0: That literally saves the West. Stay tuned. We'll conclude our special edition of this, The Hugh Hewitt Show, after these messages. Welcome back, America. This is the conclusion of a six-part special broadcast. Our guest has been Larry Arn. Uh, Dr. Arn is the president of Hillsdale College, and we originally taped this on a couple of days in December of 2001. In fact, December 27th, 2001, concluded it. A day, Dr. Oran, when Osama bin Laden's tape is released that says, quoting, we say the end of the United States is imminent, saying that it is a fragile superpower. Um, is he right about that? Leo Strauss said the West would never end unless its ideals were eclipsed. Uh, what do you think? Well, what I think is that um,
1: if you study the record of the West, and especially these statesmen that we've been talking about, and some of the ancient statesmen as well, what you'll see is that living well has always been the challenge and especially in politics there are always problems and sometimes they come to great crises and what mr bin laden mistook was he mistook us he mistook the deepest thing about us and and he should have read a little churchill because if he hadn't he wouldn't be that haggard if he had done so and understood he probably wouldn't be that haggard drawn person hunted from cave to cave that he is right now and he probably wouldn't have killed those 4,000 people that he killed because he would understand that it is true that we are peace-loving people but because we are in the habit of governing ourselves we are ready to fight and we are good at it in the way that no slaves ever can be.
0: Larry Arn, I want to thank you for uh, spending so much time on this project. Uh, I know you were reluctant to do so, but you have done it very, very well indeed. <laughs> thank you, Hugh. And once again, one 800 I also want to tell people that uh, we will eventually get these tapes available. I'm already getting requests from day one, uh, and we will make them available to you at some early point in this. Uh, Dr. Arn, any personal uh, favorite that they should begin with if people are moved to pick up a book?
1: Well, you can never go wrong reading Churchill.
0: Okay. (laughs) We we end where we ended, then. Do you happen to know offhand what his quote was about cotton candy or sugar candy? Of course I do. Well, please, may I hear it?
1: We have not traveled all this way across the oceans, across the mountains, across the prairies, because we are made of sugar candy. He was
0: saying that to Hitler. <laughs> I, I love that quote, that but it's app- it's appropriate as well for our friend Mr. Bin Laden and uh, on this, the day of his uh, ultimate challenge to the West. Professor Larry Arn, Dr. Larry Arne, President of Hillsdale College, once again, thank you, and thanks to you, America, for listening. Parts one through five already done. This concludes part six of the special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. If you would like information on getting the tapes of this New Year's Eve and New Year's Day broadcast, you go to com. If you'd like to get on the Hillsdale mailing list where you can receive free, absolutely free of cost, in Primus, their newsletter of great words and great thoughts, call one-eight hundred-four three 2268 And whatever you do, be sure to tune in tomorrow as we return to the regular programming of this, the Hugh Hewitt Show.